1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4. Hopefully you had a good conversation on this stretch break. I know it's hard to kind of cut that off and come back and settle in. Uh, as you're, as just by way of introduction, conversation is an interesting thing. Maybe you've been in a conversation and you're talking about something and out of the blue, somebody just brings up something totally different, just changes the subject. And you're like, where in the world did that come from? What are you talking about? Deborah and I do this to each other now and then, not too often, but like we might be talking about our family in Texas and out of the blue, I come out with, you know, tax deadlines right around the corner. And she's like, you know, no context, no bridge, no warning, just boom, like we're off on another thing and wondering where is that coming from? Well, as we continue this morning in our study of First Thessalonians, we're in for a big change from last week. See, Paul's writing to the church, it takes a very different direction this morning. Last week, we were in a topic that is so much a part of our human existence, our culture, our everyday lives. It was the topic of human sexuality and sexual immorality. And it's everywhere. We see it, we feel it, we can't avoid it. Well, just one verse later, we're in a topic that none of us has experienced and to be quite honest, it's almost hard for us to imagine. It's the topic of the end times and the return of Christ. And so last week was all about Christian living. In fact, that was the title of the message, Christian living. And this week is about death and what comes after death. The end times is what it's about. And in some ways, I think it's easier to deal with things that we are more involved in. And and a topic that we encounter every day. But nonetheless, even though this is something that's kind of foreign to us in some ways, the end times is every bit as important and every bit as certain as the life we're living right now. So why this shift? Why does he just, boom, go off on another topic? Was he running out of parchment paper? (laughs) You know, I kind of wonder. I don't think that's it. I think it's because the Thessalonians' death was all around them, much more so than we have around us today. Some of their, they, they had lost loved ones, family and friends, through Christian persecution. And they were working their way through that. And so Paul wrote these words to encourage them. And so as our study moves into the end times, these events might not be as far off as we might think they are. And they're certainly a lot closer than when this letter was written. And so I've entitled the message this morning, The First Return. And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And the outline has just two simple parts. Number one, the certainty in verses 13 and 14. And then secondly, the sequence in verses 15 and 18. And so the text is only six verses. So we'll just start by reading through that and then we'll, we'll dive in. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, it says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Well, I want to look first at the certainty of this whole thing. This is God's word. And I want to look at the certainty. And these words from the Apostle Paul are meant to be an encouragement to the church. So let me just start out with some words of encouragement 
apostle style. You are going to die. You're going to die. It's, it's, unless you're one of the very few that will be on the earth alive when the Lord returns. Very few over the whole span of human history. Unless you're one of those, you're going to die. You're getting older and older and you're going to die. How's that? <laughs> For words of encouragement. In fact, right now, this is the youngest you will ever be. You realize that? Maybe write that in a birthday card next time someone turns 30 or 40 or 80. This is the youngest you're ever going to be. Oh, and you're going to die. Happy birthday. <laughs> Words of encouragement. Yet, this is the backdrop for this word of encouragement. It's the, it's the reality, the certainty of death. Here are the latest statistics on death. One out of every one dies. <laughs> On an average, 167,000 people per day. 7,000 per hour. 116 per minute. Two per second in the world die. That's like the death rate in the world. And it just doesn't stop. You and I are going to be among them one day. Unless the Lord returns first. So the big question will then what happens next? When am I going to die? And what happens next? What happens when we die? There's actually college courses on thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. And Thanatos was a Greek god of death. He was the brother of Hypnos, the Greek god of sleep, for what that's worth, the god with little g. And you'll find a lot of opinions about what happens when we die. Yet, all of those opinions, there's only two possible sources of all of them. One is revelation. Revealed to us from outside of time by God. That's one. And the other is imagination. There is no other. It's either revelation or imagination. Or you could say speculation. Well, I think. See, nobody's been there. None of us have been there. So unless we listen to God's revelation, whatever we might think about death and what happens next is purely imagination. Deborah and I invited some neighbors over for dinner this week. And it's an older couple. We've known them for, oh, more than 20 years. And we talked about engineering and airplanes because he's an engineer. And then we talked about a bunch of other things, family and retirement. We talked about... Um, also theology and church and near the end of our evening I just asked him what he thinks will happen when he dies and he shared with me part of a book that he had written for his family members and in it he wrote I can't know for sure nobody does but this is my best guess and then he went on to lay out a scenario it contains some let's just say uh, really creative ideas there was very little revelation there. It was mostly imagination. It was speculation. And yet despite all of this speculation on death, our text begins with these words. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. We don't want you to be ignorant. In other words, don't settle for speculation when God has given us some clear revelation. Now, we don't have to be ignorant. We don't have to guess. God wants us to be absolutely certain about what happens. Now, a disclaimer. God has not told us everything about death and what comes next. But he has told us everything that we need to know. He wouldn't withhold anything that is important for us to know. So let's look carefully at what it is that he said. First notice that Paul refers to those who have died as those who fall asleep. It may sound strange, but the Bible often refers to death as sleep. In the Old Testament, Daniel 12.2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 1 Kings 2.10 says that David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And then in the New Testament, Jesus often referred to death as sleep. 
In Matthew 9, a synagogue ruler came to him. His daughter was very, very sick. In fact, she died. And, and Jesus said, the girl is not dead, but asleep. In John chapter 11, Jesus was told that a close friend named Lazarus was very sick and near death. A couple days later, he died. Jesus waited a few days, and then he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. He had to come out and say, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> they were kind of, they didn't get it. It was a metaphor. So Jesus goes and wakes him up. He raises Lazarus from the dead. So this metaphor of sleep, I think one of the reasons it's used is because it emphasizes the temporary nature of death. He's not gone forever. He's taking a nap. He's sleeping. You know what? Our modern English word for cemetery comes from the Greek word koimaterion. And you know what it means? Sleeping place or a dormitory. <laughs> How about that? I'm going to go to the dormitory and visit my grandfather who passed away. That's where it comes from. So it says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. There's a lot of ignorance. There was back then, and there's a lot today. Many believe that death is the end. In 2003, Stephen Turner wrote a satirical poem called Creed. And he said this in it. He said, we believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead person what happens, they say nothing. That was his opinion, his speculation. But death is not the end of all things. To God, it's little more than sleep from which everyone, believer and unbeliever, will one day awake. Now, this metaphor of sleep is referring to the state of our bodies, not our souls. There is no truth to the notion of what some call soul sleep. There are some denominations, Seventh-day Adventist, Church of God, that teach soul sleep. And soul sleep is the idea that upon death, your soul goes into an unconscious state until the resurrection. You just veg out. You, you're not really alert, awake, conscious. But the Bible conveys something very different. It conveys that after death, our bodies sleep, but our souls are very much awake and sensate. They can sense things. I'll give you a couple examples. Jesus told the story of another Lazarus and the rich man. And the soul of Lazarus was experiencing comfort after death. But the soul of the rich man was experiencing distress. In Revelation 6.10, the souls of the martyrs are crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They were alert. They knew what was going on. Paul wrote that to be away from the body is not to be unconscious, but to be at home with the Lord. So the metaphor of sleep refers to the state of the body, not the soul. And so verse 13 again says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The Thessalonians were obviously grieving. They'd lost many brothers and sisters killed by the persecution. Now, I've officiated 14 memorial services. I went back and looked in my 10 years as pastor here at Riverside. There aren't as many memorial services, I thought, because most people don't retire in Illinois. They move south. I think the pastors in Florida and Arkansas and Arizona do more memorial services than here in Illinois. But 14 memorial services, the last one was just over two weeks ago. And there's mourning at every single memorial service. But they're not all the same. Because with the death of a believer, there's great hope. Um, it's, many of you are newer to Riverside. It's been about nine years now since we lost a young man who was part of our student ministry. His name was Marquise, and he was the adopted son of a family in our church. 
and one Labor Day weekend, he was up in Wisconsin with another family, some friends, and they were swimming, and there was a tragic accident, and he drowned. I flew up that afternoon with his father so that we could be there as they searched and recovered the body. It was actually the next day. And there was a memorial service held here at Riverside. 700 people showed up for the visitation, many of them classmates, friends, some family. Some of them were people who worked with Marquise at McDonald's. And there were 400 people here for the memorial service. And I'll never forget the line for the visitation. The family was standing right here, and the line went all the way down the hall and into the gym, and it went around the inside of the gym, and it came back down the hall again, and it went out the door to the parking lot. There were so many people here, a lot of teenagers. In fact, we had a midweek service just for teens. And it was, uh, it was a sad time for one, but it was a very powerful time as well. And when I think of that service, there's a couple enduring memories for me. One of them is this image. It's the father, Bill, and his mother, Liz, standing beside the casket, it was after everybody had left, and they were absolutely heartbroken. And they were just leaning on each other in grief. But they did not grieve like those who have no hope. It was a very different kind of grief. See, five years earlier, Marquise was part of a group from our church that attended the Harvest Crusade with Greg Laurie at the Allstate Arena in Chicago. And when the invitation came, he went forward with several others from our church and he gave his life to the Lord. He became a new creation in Christ that day and his life began to show it. Now, we have a newer member of our church family who was largely responsible for bringing the Harvest Crusade to Chicago in 2012, in 2010. And Paul, I'm thankful for you. I want you to know that the fruit of your labor, it impacted this church body right here. A number of people were saved at that event, and Marquise was one of them. And so, another enduring memory of that memorial service for me was that of his father standing at the front of that visitation line, sharing the gospel with teenagers with tears just streaming down his face. He was grieving. He was hurting. But he wasn't grieving like those who have no hope. We shared the gospel during the service. Afterwards, one young man gave his life to the Lord in my office and was saved. It was a, it's still to this day, I think it's one of the most powerful times of worship that I can ever remember. It was just the presence of the Lord, close to the brokenhearted, which was palpable. And so this, this was a, a time of mourning, but there was great, great hope. And there's nothing wrong with mourning. Jesus mourned at the death of Lazarus. The Jews would mourn for 30 days. But the death of a believer is not a hopeless end to this life. It's an endless hope. It's an endless hope. The story is told of a man whose wife became ill and passed away. And after the memorial service and a couple weeks off work, he returned to work where a co-worker saw him and said, I'm so sorry I heard about the loss of your wife. And the man said, well, no, I really didn't lose her. You see, you can't lose something when you know where it is. That's hope. This man was filled with hope. And by hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. See, the word uses hope differently than the biblical definition of hope. A better word might be confidence. Because biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's confident expectation. It's waiting for that which we know is absolutely certain to happen. It's just a matter of waiting until it gets here. That's biblical hope. See, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's surety, there's certainty. That's biblical hope. Hope is confident expectation. 
So it says in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The resurrection of Jesus, I say it often, it's an historical fact. And it's said to be the most well-attested fact of ancient history. If all of the evidence were put forward in a court of law, there would be proof beyond any reasonable doubt. Now, don't just take my word for it. And when talking about the certainty of the resurrection, I often like to quote a man named Sir Lionel LeCoux. And he knows a lot about the courts and about evidence. He's been, he's said to be the world's greatest lawyer. And he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for successfully defending 245 consecutive murder cases. He didn't lose a single case. He knew a lot about evidence. And he was a skeptic, though, about the resurrection. But after he did all the research, he said this. I say unequivocally, unequivocally, that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's a powerful quote. Proof which leads absolutely no room for doubt. Have you, if you're, a, if you're a skeptic, have you researched it? Have you looked at the evidence? This is a quote from a man who was a skeptic and was, is held to be the greatest lawyer of all time. And he saw proof which leaves no room for doubt. So many will speculate about what happens after death, and yet they reject the words of Jesus whose, whose resurrection is an historical fact. He went through death, and he rose to life again. But here's the thing. It still comes down to a question of belief. Verse 14 says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. No amount of evidence will ever convince someone if they choose not to believe. Case in point, there's people who don't believe that we went to the moon. There's still our people. We got photographs. We got video. If video, do we have video then? Or was it like footage, like film? But we have film. You can bounce a laser beam off of a reflector that they left on the moon. The, the, there was a lunar orbiter that, that orbited in, at low altitude the moon and took pictures. And you can see the landing pad. You can see the footprints. You can see the tracks where the, the rovers drove on some of those missions. You can see the equipment they set out. And yet some people still don't believe it. It's not that they can't believe, it's that they won't. And that's how it is often with the resurrection and faith in Christ. People don't look at all the evidence. They don't want to know. And so they choose not to believe. But it says, we believe that Jesus rose, that Jesus died and rose again, verse 14. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God is the author of life and that every other person will also rise again. He will raise them. Paul echoes the same thought in his letter to the Corinthians. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is our faith. This is our hope. It's our confident expectation. And it should bring us great encouragement. Because there's certainty of it. We can be certain of what is to come. So then let's look next at the sequence. How does this all play out? Well, we'll start in verse 15. It says, 
according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there's an order, a sequence to these events. And as we go through this end times, this week and next week, and probably a few that follow, I'm going to try to lay out like a timeline so that we can understand and anticipate what is going to happen. So verse 15, it's speaking of two groups of people, and both are believers. The first group is those who have fallen asleep or have died before the return of Christ, and the second group is those who are still alive upon the return of Christ. And it says that those who are, that those who are still alive will not precede those who are dead. In other words, those who die in Christ won't miss out on anything. They, in fact, will be the first to meet up bodily with the Lord, even before those who are still alive. And so the next verse then explains how this will happen. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now again, this is so far from our human experience that it's almost hard to get our mind around that Jesus Christ will come down and will call the dead in Christ and the living in Christ and draw them to himself. It's so far from anything we've ever experienced. And yet, it's absolutely true. This is called the first resurrection, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. There is a second resurrection. It happens at the end of the millennium. And that's the resurrection of those who are unbelievers. And they're raised to eternal judgment. But this is the first resurrection. Revelation says, man, blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. Those who die in Christ. So the first resurrection, it says, will happen at the command of God. Just like when Jesus said to Lazarus in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And by the very power of his word, he raised him to life. Now, the verse in this text describes three audible sounds. It says a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and a trumpet. They could all be describing the same thing, or maybe they're three different Audible sounds, we don't really know, and I really don't think it matters. What's important is that the dead in Christ will hear it. And I think that those who are alive might hear it also, although they might not understand. It might not be intelligible to them. Do you remember when Paul heard the voice of the Lord on the road to Damascus? And those traveling with him, it says, also heard a sound, but they didn't understand the voice. It wasn't intelligible to them, only to Paul. So it could be this way when the dead in Christ are raised. That there's some noise. What was that? An asteroid? A sonic boom? What was that? But the dead in Christ will hear and understand and they will be raised to life. The primary point of this verse is just that. That they will rise at the Lord's command. And they will meet up with the Lord first. So we don't have to mourn for them. They won't miss anything. Sir Winston Churchill, you know him, the great prime minister of the UK, probably one of the greatest statesmen statesmen ever to live. Before his death in 1965, it's said that he arranged his and planned his own memorial service. And after the benediction, a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral was to play taps, which was the universal signal to extinguish lights. We know it as a song that's always played at a military funeral, right? No, I got not a bugler. I guess you don't need a bugle. But you know this taps. I always love it the, at the Indianapolis 500 when they play that on Memorial Day before the start of the race. But immediately after taps, in the, this dramatic fashion that was common of Winston Churchill, he had another bugler across the dome who played Reveille. 
Now, I don't know if you know Reveille. Reveille is the universal signal that a new day has begun. It's time to wake up. You might not be familiar with the name, but you're probably familiar with the tune. I'll try to do it. better, huh? It's had to get warmed up. <laughs> Reveille was played after taps, immediately after taps. And this was Churchill's way of saying that the last note for him and for human history would not be taps, it would be Reveille. It will be so because of our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At a trumpet blast, the dead in Christ will rise. So, verse 17 says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. After that, meaning after the resurrection of the dead in Christ comes an event known as the rapture. Rapture means snatching away. It's a removal of the Christians who are alive from the earth, carried away. And the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Bible, but don't be alarmed, neither is the word Bible found anywhere in the Bible. But the concept that a rapture is in the Bible, this is a term that's been used to describe it, just like with the Trinity. I was, I think, a young boy when I first heard the term rapture and was told what it is. And it seemed kind of spooky to me. It even seemed a little kooky. Like, what? It it just was something so unusual. But then as I studied the Bible more and more as I grew up, I realized this is sound biblical truth. Almost all Christians, regardless of denomination, believe in the rapture of the church as taught in Scripture. But there are some different views on when it'll happen. So I want to just talk about the timing for a minute. Because again, I want to try to lay out a sequence of events this week and next week as we look at the end times. The three most common views are that of a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, and a post-tribulation rapture. So why the different views? Well, it's because the Bible doesn't say exactly when the rapture will happen. You have to piece it together. And there are a number of clues, but some people can look at the same evidence and arrive at one conclusion, and others maybe a different conclusion. At Riverside, we teach from a pre-tribulation view. That's that the church will be removed before the tribulation. But I wouldn't fault someone who holds a different view. It doesn't mean you're unfaithful. You might be wrong. Do you know what I No. Any of us could be wrong. But I'm going to try to just unpack why we believe in a pre-tribulation view is our best understanding of Scripture. And an important starting point is something that you might not have noticed, but there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And here in our text, the rapture is spoken of in verses 16 and 17. And the second coming is alluded to in verse 13, and it's spoken of directly in chapter 5 that we'll come to next time in verses 2 through 4. So it's speaking of both at different times, and let's just compare the two briefly here. The rapture in the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus comes for his church, but he doesn't come all the way to the earth. Verse 17 in our text says those who are still alive are and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So I'm calling this his first return. It's his first return. He's coming back for the first time for his church. And he doesn't come all the way to the earth. And it's a time of deliverance. He's bringing the church, collecting them, gathering them to himself. Remember the first time he came to the earth, he came as a suffering savior. He came born in a manger, died on a cross. That was his first time coming to the earth. The second coming is speaking of his second time coming to the earth. This time he'll come as a conquering king. So 
In the second coming, Christ returns with his church, not for his church, and he comes all the way to the earth. 1 Thessalonians uh, 3.13 says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, not for them. It's different than the rapture. And again, he comes all the way to the earth. Zechariah 14, 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. And his second coming, it's not a time of deliverance. It's a time of judgment. He comes to bring judgment to all believers living on the earth. So the rapture is when Christ comes for his church in the air. The second coming, as we see it, is when Christ returns to the earth with his church. And so this is an important starting point in recognizing some of the timing of these events. And with this in mind then, a pre-tribulation view of the rapture seems to be the best fit for scripture. But we we hold that humbly. We're not going to die on this hill. Some of the reasons, though, that we would support, would cite this is that the tribulation is a time of great wrath, and it's a time of God's wrath. And I've listed some verses there. Those with the mid or post-tribulation view say that the church will go through all or at least part of the tribulation. And they cite verses such as John 16, 33, where Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Or in some translations, in this world, you will have tribulation. But that's not the same word as wrath. It's very different. It's it's speaking of persecution from unbelievers. Wrath is speaking about God's wrath and judgment upon mankind. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe that God delivers his church from the wrath. See, the wrath of God for us was poured out on his son in our place. But the unbelieving world will suffer the wrath of God. Another reason I would cite is that the first three chapters of Revelation are full of talk of the church. But then when you get to chapters 4 through 21, which are all about this terrible tribulation, there is no mention of the church. Implying, at least, that the church is not present during the tribulation. A couple more reasons are that the preacher view fits our understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church. And it also explains what we call the imminence of his return. It could happen at any time. It'll be a surprise. We don't know exactly when he'll come back. The rapture is imminent. And Jesus said we're to be ready and waiting. I like the theme for the women's conference, by the way, watching and waiting. I have a story that goes along with that. In fact, in 1914, you've maybe heard of Sir Sir Ernest Shackleton. He set out with a crew of 27 men aboard a a wooden vessel, only 150, 144 feet long. It was a sailing ship. It had a little steam engine, too. But they set out to explore Antarctica and try to make it to the North Pole, approaching the continent from the north. But five months into their journey, the Endurance became trapped by the ice in the Weddell Sea. And they were stranded there almost a thousand miles from any other living human being. And for seven months, they were there, camping on the ice. The ship began to fill with water after just a month. They bailed out, they set up camp, seven months. And they hoped that the ice would free up in the springtime and they'd be able to sail out of there. But as the ice broke up, it began to move around, and what it did was crush the ship. So now... It was an even more dire survival mission. And so they, the, the ship sank and they drifted on the ice, big ice sheets, for over three months. 
They came within 30 miles of an island, and they thought, well, we'll be able to just get off the ice sheet and walk over to the island, but then the ice broke up, and they couldn't. So now, 10 months into their being stranded, the crew boarded lifeboats, and they traveled 60 miles by lifeboat to an island called Elephant Island. And then from there, the most amazing part, Shackleton and five of his men set out for help in one small lifeboat, leaving the others behind. The nearest town, a whaling camp, was 830 miles away. Now, can you imagine? That's a four-week journey at best. Can you imagine traveling that far in an open lifeboat like that in Antarctica? How would you even put enough supplies for six guys on a boat that size for a month. It's amazing. And while they're in the lifeboat, they, fer- they face hurricane force winds. And they later learned that those winds sunk a 500-ton steamer. And here they're in a little wooden lifeboat. Somehow they made it to South Georgia Island. When they got there, they had to trek 22 miles across the inland mountains and ice sheets and crevasses to get to the little whaling town. But they made it. And there Shackleton began to organize a rescue mission to go back for his men on Elephant Island. Because before he left, he said, I will come back and get you. He promised them he would. Well, it would be more than three months before they could even set out aboard a steam-powered Navy ship, a Chilean vessel. And it was named the Yelcho. And even then, after waiting three months for the right conditions and getting everything prepared, they faced huge icebergs that blocked the way on their 850-mile journey back to Elephant Island. Who knew if these men were even going to be alive when they get there? But they wrote that suddenly, as if by a miracle, an avenue opened up in the ice and Shackleton was able to get through. After four and a half months since they left... They approached the island, and guess what? His men spotted him a great distance away and quickly started waving, and when they landed, they quickly scrambled aboard the ship. No sooner had they gotten on board and the ship departed than the ice crashed together behind them, blocking the way once again. And so... Contemplating their narrow escape, Shackleton said to his men, it was fortunate that you were all packed up and ready to go. And this is what they replied. We never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, the boss may come home today. Four and a half months, a thousand miles from any civilization in the Antarctica. And they never gave up hope. Day after day. Shackleton kept his promise and he came back for his men. It is the most amazing rescue mission, I think, of all time. We too should not lose hope in the return of Christ. Just because he hasn't returned yet doesn't mean he isn't coming. He said, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. See, the rapture will be a complete surprise. Whereas the second coming will happen at the end of seven years of tribulation. The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any time. So what's he waiting for? Why hasn't he come back yet? Doesn't he see what's going on in our world? People are suffering. This world's gone nuts. Why doesn't he come back and put an end to evil and judge the world? What's holding him up? It could be you. It could be you. See, the Bible says that it speaks of the full number of Gentiles coming in. And when that number, whatever it is, I almost imagine a little clicker up in heaven and it's counting up. You know, there's, Dave, how many 10,000 a month coming to Christ in China and Africa? I mean, tremendous numbers. It's clicking up, but there is a number that God has in mind and only he knows. And when it hits that number, the events of the end times commence. Maybe you're the last one. Maybe you're what's holding us all up. Let's get out of here. (laughs) But the fact is, when God looks at the world and, and he grieves over the sin and the evil, just like you and I do. But you know what? To him, it's worth waiting. 
that one more may be saved, that one more may be saved, that ten more may be saved, that a thousand more may be saved. He's willing to tolerate the evil of the world so that more can be saved. That's the heart of our God. Well, one final reason for a pre-tribulation view is in 2 Thessalonians. And Paul speaks of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And it says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Interesting verse. We believe the the one that holds him back is the Holy Spirit. Who's resident where? In the church. In the believers of the church. Remember, the church is the salt of the earth. Salt was a preservative. It kept things from spoiling. When the church is removed, the spirit will also be removed. And it will no longer hold back Satan or the Antichrist. And you could say all hell will break loose because that's pretty much what will happen. The tribulation will commence. So our best understanding is that a pre-tribulation view fits the narrative of Scripture. But again, I wouldn't fault someone who holds a different view. We hold that humbly. So the sequence of events is this. At any time, Jesus comes back for his church... And it begins with the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And then right after that, those who are alive, believers on the earth, will be raised up. And they'll all meet together in the air. That would be the rapture. And right after that, we believe, begins the tribulation. So let's just flesh this out a little bit further. If Jesus comes for his church today... You might be going, well, I hope you don't come before the football game. I actually, at one point in my life, a couple points in my life, I actually thought, well, I hope Jesus doesn't return before my wedding and honeymoon. And, and I thought the same thing. I was a lot younger and dumber back then. I thought the same thing. Our 10-year anniversary, we were going to the Caribbean, and I always wanted to see those turquoise waters and white sugar sand beaches. Oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come back before my 10-year anniversary. I've been planning this for months. How stupid was that? As if the return of the Lord wouldn't be so far better than anything I was going to see down in St. Lucia. But I thought it. But anyway, let's say the Lord came back today. Those who have died in Christ will be raised first. Let's make it personal. Marquise Huff, Jack Tierney, Phil and Sharon Skull, Tom Waltower, Walt Barrett. Just to name a few. They'll be raised first to be with the Lord. And right after that, the rest of us who are believers here in the church and are still alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And we will see the Lord face to face. And in that moment, we will all be changed. And I don't have time to break down what that will look like. Maybe in, in another week we can. But... We will become incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. I'll just read you 1 Corinthians 15. Part of it, it says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. That's our ticket out. It's going to happen. And we will be changed. Right after that, we believe the tribulation. So the church does not face the wrath of God. Again, that wrath was taken out on his son in our place. So verse 18 says, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Don't be in despair. Don't give up hope. Don't be unprepared. But encourage one another. Spur one another on with these words. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. When we are united with Christ. We talked last 
week about this incredible gift of human sexuality. It's just a taste, a foretaste. It's pointing to our reunion with Christ. Whatever that would look like, we can't even conceive it. It'll be so amazing. We just don't know, but it's going to be glorious. We'll look next week at the timing of the other end time events, like the second coming, the millennium, the final judgment, and try to piece that together. But I want to just do a quick recap because we covered a lot. We started off by saying that you're going to die unless the Lord comes back today or soon. We're all going to die. We can be certain of that. But God has told us everything Not everything about death, but everything that we need to know about death. He's told us so that we can be certain. The death of a believer is not a hopeless end. It's endless hope. It's eternal life. And so we don't have to mourn like those who have no hope. We don't have to fear death. And biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's confident expectation. It's certain to happen, it's just a matter of when. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God is the author of life, and we too will rise again. So don't settle for speculation, don't be ignorant. Listen to the words of Jesus, whose resurrection is an historical fact. With the loud command, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first resurrection, the resurrection of those who believe. There'll be that later resurrection of those who don't believe. That'll be a resurrection unto judgment. After that will come the rapture, the removal of Christians who are alive on the earth. They'll meet up with the Lord and the resurrected believers in the air. So the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture, I'm calling the first return of Christ. He comes back for his church first. I believe he does that before the tribulation. Pre-tribulation view of the rapture seems to fit scripture best. But this is not something that we need to divide over if you see it differently. And don't forget the overall purpose of this text is to reinforce that we can trust God. And we can find encouragement in these things. We don't have to fear what is to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of life. You created us for your good purpose. You breathed your life into us and we became living beings. Death was never what you wanted for us. We brought that on ourselves through sin, God. And yet even when we chose sin, when we rebelled, you paid the price to redeem us so that you could give us new life. Give us a hope and a future. Give us eternal life and eternity with you. Abundant life. You're the Lord of life. But God, for now, it's painful when we lose someone who passes away. Someone whom we love. And it's even scary to think of our own death at times and the end of all things. God, we don't know everything about what will happen. But we know you and we can trust you. And so, God, I pray that these words would bring great comfort and encouragement when we're discouraged, when we're hurting, when we're afraid. God, help us to encourage one another in these things. Help us to be watching and waiting, keeping our eyes fixed on you, preparing for your return. So that, God, that this church, this body of believers would be found faithful on the day you come back for us. God, we ask this. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Let's worship.